that football group is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson. It's Super Bowl week, so we'll get into the Super Bowl and then, of course, some free agency talk. Sam, you ready to go? I am. Is the studio ready to go? No, not no. at all. We have we weather problems. Is that what the issue is? They deleted our faces and they put up curtains. Huh. Okay. I mean, it's yeah. Fair you enough. Think you think they put up curtains because of weather? Probably like like it's gonna rain into the. Well, weather can like knock out you know a window, branch through the window. I don't know what happened. I have a story about that. No, of course you do. But first, don't forget all first time depositors at Monkey Knife Fight to put at least twenty dollars into their account while using the promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription, forty dollars of value for just twenty bucks, and you get the opportunity to turn that twenty into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games at the fastest growing fantasy sports site in the U.S. It's Monkey Knife Fight. Go to Monkey Knife Fight, deposit your 20 bucks, use the promo code PFF, and receive your free PFF Edge annual subscription. This is only valid, I think, through this weekend, Sam, so it's your yeah. last chance to go and turn that go, 40 go, go. bucks, uh, 20 bucks into far more value, especially getting that PFF Edge annual subscription. Highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. We had, um, I played uh, winter ball in Puerto Rico. Winter ball? Winter. Winter baseball. Puerto Rican League. Okay. So I played in the Puerto Rican League, uh-huh. and I lived in a little villa with my roommate, and whoever, you know, they bunch of guys came in to change our windows one day. To change the windows? They, they were exchanging the windows out. They took all our windows out. They left in the living room, took the windows out, left. Is this like a regular thing? Or? I, I don't know. We needed new windows, apparently. <laughs> so for like two hours, we had no windows, and it absolutely poured yeah. during that time. So it poured, it rained into our living room, and my roommate and I were using curtains a lot like those, (laughs) standing where the windows were. These were like floor-to-ceiling windows, standing, holding the curtains up, trying to stop the rain. It was just like, you ever have a Tuesday morning where it just starts raining into your living room? No. Well. Because I usually have windows. Well, that's, that was our Tuesday morning. Or at the very minimum, I don't have them removed until somebody's there with replacements ready to put them right back in. That was, that was our Tuesday morning. Look, the people don't like stories, though, so we're going to get to, uh. Right. The football stuff. So we have a Super Bowl preview. We're bringing in Brad Spielberger. He is our contract expert over here at PFF. We're going to talk free agency. We're going to talk about his salary contract projection, some of the work he's done using PFF data to, to project things going forward, who's going to make the most money in free agency. So we'll get into that, and we'll bring him on a little bit later. But let's get into uh, Super Bowl 55. Chiefs, Bucks, discuss. Let's go. Hmm. Okay. Let's get into it. That's structured, huh? Yeah. I see. Um. Another game of the playoffs where we've seen it already earlier in the season. 
this feels like is this an abnormal year for how many of those we've had? Like I, every game seems to have been a rematch. I looked it up. The la I mean the two wow. well done. The two championship games yeah. were rematches. The divisional, divisional round, round I think Bucks. Saints Bucks was a rematch. Uh, but Chiefs Browns wasn't, right. and um, Rams Packers wasn't. Right. What was the other one? Uh, Buffalo. Buffalo Ravens also wasn't. Yeah. So, but like the the week before the wild card, wild round, card I think was a lot of rematches. Well. Yeah. It feels like there's been a lot of rematches, and it's an interesting dynamic, right? Oh, like yeah. how you said much you looked it up. Did you get anywhere with your looking up? Or I, I didn't come up with a number. I know the last three games were the three <laughs> biggest games were all rematches. You went deep with the research. I see. Okay. You were so excited tonight. I know. I thought you had like an answer for me. I let you down. Yeah, the last three have been rematches. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, I already knew that, but okay. So same stuff we talked about last week. How much does the last matchup actually matter? And particularly because, again, like some of the other rematches, like the first time they met was such an extreme, so extreme. version of what, the, you know, what was going to happen. The first quarter, Tyreek Hill, 7 for 7 for 203 yards. Like just absolutely torch this Tampa Bay defense obviously they made some adjustments as the game went on and slowed that bleeding down but it's it's a lot like the Green Bay Tampa Bay rematch where the first game was such an absurd uh extreme version of that game can you what do you do like do you expect the same thing to happen is that so is Tampa Bay's primary focus going into this game Tyreek Hill on the basis that he put up 200 yards in the first quarter the last time they met and therefore (laughs) that's the first thing we have to take away before we do anything else. Uh, Or do they go, well, that was freaky. That's probably not happening twice. Let's construct a more rational game plan. Human nature would say stop Tyreek, right? But our guy Timo, um, you know, he's a Bucks guy and all that stuff, follows them closely and was thinking maybe that is the best strategy still. So even though Tyreek goes off for 200, and are you going to – you really can't cover him one-on-one. Like he's going to get behind the defense if he's going to get by you. But making Mahomes make 30 and 40 yard throws over and over again, more than capable of doing that, but making him make those low percentage throws. Because what happened with the game after that is interesting as well. Mahomes fumbles in the red zone, and that was a big part of what closed the gap in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Bucks just played a lot softer. And, and the game went from track meet, Chiefs are just dominating, Mahomes and Tyreek are unstoppable. And it started looking like like the Chiefs' offense of the last couple weeks, actually, which was Browns and Bills playing a little bit softer, allowing the underneath stuff, and the, the Chiefs just matriculating up the field. Wow. In old-school Chiefs fashion, Sam. So I think that's the interesting component. Do the Bucks say, yeah, we got to stop Tyreek, but we already kind of figured out the answer. We did that in the second half of the game and slowed them down, and we, we went bend but don't break and then made some red zone stops. Or do they say, all right, Mahomes – do it again you know hit every one of those throws again I think it's going to be let's play it a little bit safer keep things underneath it's another one of those games as well where the the strategy if there is one again Mahomes has reached this point of like what the hell is the game plan like just in a vacuum forget what you do well and what they do well what is what are you supposed to do to stop Patrick Mahomes right that I think is an existential question that every team facing the Chiefs is looking at when they go into a game Let's assume for a moment, given how ridiculously well he carves up the blitz, the answer is not to blitz, or the answer is very not to blitz, right? (laughs) Whatever you do, don't blitz. Right now, Mahomes has a passer rating of 136 against the blitz. Yikes. Right. Perfect passer rating is 158.3. He's at 136 against the blitz. Probably not what you want to do, therefore. 
Um, and, you know, there was no better example, I think, than against the Ravens. Ravens blitz as much as anybody in the NFL, led the league in blitz rate this year, led it in 2019 as well. Um, and they're good at it, right? They don't just blitz, but they're very good at, A, the way they blitz to generate pressure, and B, covering it up on the back end. So one of the reasons most teams don't blitz a ton is because it leaves a hole somewhere in your in your coverage. And the Ravens are very good at, A, so if you know where the hole is, the opposition probably knows where the hole is, and that's where the ball is going to get passed, right? You pass in behind the blitz, big play, it's a problem. The Ravens are very good at knowing that you know that and therefore putting a guy right there um, and sort of dropping somebody into that space and causing you to hold the ball a split second longer, go somewhere else, and that's when the blitz actually gets home. But when Kansas City played Baltimore, it was like the Chiefs knew the playbook. It was like they knew exactly where Baltimore were going to drop players and therefore where to target. It was like three steps of chess further on. Um, and Tampa Bay is one of those teams that blitzes a lot. On the season, only Baltimore and Arizona have blitzed more than Tampa Bay. So their game plan typically is blitz. Send the house, send pressure, get after the quarterback. They didn't do it against Mahomes the last time they played. And given what we know, that's the right way of approaching it. They blitzed 18% against Mahomes versus 42% against the rest of the league. Do they come after him more this time? So that's an interesting one. I think we need to get into that offensive line discussion with the Chiefs because right. that will also influence that. That might exactly influence that decision. I want to go back really quick, though, because you said, how do you stop the Chiefs? And, and I think as far as stopping Mahomes through the years, the Patriots have, have done it, right? Mm -hmm. He's got a low 60s grade, passing grade, against the Patriots. But the dynamic here is you, you'll hear a lot of people say Patrick Mahomes has never had a bad game. And depending on which stats you look at, right. it's true. Right, because against the Patriots, he has a low 60s PFF grade, but his passer rating is still about 105. So statistically, he really hasn't had a bad game. But you take your chance. Like if Mahomes doesn't play well and you force him to some turnover-worthy throws, like that's your best bet. You want to be able to do that. But my point is, replicating the Patriots' strategy is really, really difficult yeah. for defenses. It's it's a lot easier for offenses to morph week to week and adjust to what the defense is doing. It's not easy for a defense that plays zone, say, or blitzes like crazy or whatever they, their, their thing is, to go say, well, let's dial up what the Patriots do, which is play cover one and get, which is man coverage across the board with two extra defenders. And what the Patriots do is take those two extra defenders and get creative with it. They might double Tyreek. They might double Kelsey. They might double both. They might just sit in the middle of the field, right? And it's the uniqueness of the extra defenders while playing pretty good man coverage, which the Patriots yeah. do well. So the challenge here, the, I don't think the Bucs can just like dust off a Patriots game plan and right. say, hey, that works against Mahomes. No, but that's, that's the big issue is that most teams just don't have the horses to do the first part of that, right? Which is play pretty good man coverage across the board right. before you start figuring out where you're putting the sort of the free hole defenders. Like that, that's the benefit of that defense is that you get those two guys to start playing with, which is what you need when you're trying to deal with Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. You effectively need two free defenders to be able to move around the defense and essentially take those two guys away, bracket cover both of them. The problem is, in order to free up those two guys, you need to have confidence that everybody else can hold up in man coverage, at least initially, before you start getting creative. And most teams just don't have that and are not, um, are not creative enough to manage it. So that, I think, is, is a definite problem. The idea that Mahomes has never had a bad game statistically, it's really fascinating, right? Because 
you can look at that and make the argument of, well, okay, if the Patriots held him to a PFF grade in the 60s, but his passer rating was 105, what's the point, right? Like He's therefore still productive, therefore it's not actually having any effect, therefore why is that good? But I think fundamentally, if you are forcing it, one, illustrates just how freaking hard to stop the Chiefs are, because even if you do limit their best player, they're so good everywhere else. All of the other things we've talked about in terms of Andy Reid and the weapons and the creativity and the screen game and the RPOs, there's so much free um, yardage and production there that even if you slow down Mahomes, everybody else can pick up the slack and they beat you anyway. But I do think there's value in this idea of, it's the Bill Belichick thinking of, if you can at least force a team to plan B, it's probably a good thing inherently, just in and of itself. Even if they, okay, they might be good enough to beat you anyway, but at least you haven't let them beat you doing the thing they're most comfortable doing. You've at least forced them into an area of discomfort, um, which has made their life more difficult. Now, again, that doesn't mean you're going to win. You, they might just be better than you. But at least you can make, you've made them earn it, which I think is something. This is, it's not a Patriots show or a Patriots game, but the, the point is, to answer your other question, to your question as well, though, why do you, why does it matter? It matters because Mahomes has 10 turnover-worthy plays in four games against New England through the years and only three interceptions. So the part of the production that he's had against New England has actually been luck. The other part is like, again, when they played New England earlier this year, he had two tap pass touchdowns that essentially he had the, yeah. he had the worst game of his season was against New England, and he had two tap passes for touchdowns that put his rating over 100 and made the stats look good. So that's why statistically the Chiefs all, this Chiefs offense doesn't really slump or have bad games. Yeah, and it's not, yes, it's not just sort of, it's not that they just made his stats look good. It, it is production that the offense was having. It just didn't really involve Mahomes, which is, I think, the point is that you can slow Mahomes down and still have everybody else in that offense pick up the slack because it's so good. But the point you made, I think, about the turnovers is a good one, right? They've, one of the reasons his grade was low is because he put the ball in harm's way. Maybe he, did, he got away with it a couple of times against the Patriots, but over the over long periods of time, he won't, or at least some of the luck will swing back in your direction. So again, it's, it's playing the percentages. It's the better way of doing it because even if you can ride that luck for a while, sooner or later, you're going to catch a break and get a turnover. So that brings me to my next point. Uh, in, in that, we'll, I still want to get to the Chiefs offensive line in a minute, but um, Chris Collinsworth podcast this week, he had John Gruden on, which I thought was, was great. Really great interview. Go check it out. Um, because Gruden talks about some real stuff and maybe, you know, live air recruits Richard Sherman, who's a pending free mm. agent. Um, so it's a great interview, but Gruden's played both teams this year with the Raiders, played the Bucks, played the Chiefs. And he made the comments that a lot of analysts make, which is, well, the Bucks got to sit on the ball. They got to keep Mahomes off the field. But the argument against that is always whether Mahomes plays great, good, or below average to the point we've made it with the Patriots, the Chiefs still score points. Yeah. And the you cannot, you can't, it's not like you could just have, well, we'll keep Mahomes to six possessions. He's going to get 10 possessions or whatever, you know, the average is. So you might, you might salvage a possession. One, yeah. maybe, if you're lucky. So the Bucs need to play, score 38 points. How do we score 38 points? And if we land at 31, we might have a shot here. That needs to be the strategy for the Bucs. And my concern from their point of view is they have played the opposite over the last two weeks 
even though they got to 30, they got to 31, the last two weeks has been crazy early down running over and over and over again. They need to be aggressive. And it's got to me, it's got to be a Brady and playmakers game, not a Leonard Fournette game. Ooh, playoff Lenny. Playoff Lenny, yeah, yeah, yeah. playoff Lenny. I know, he had one great run against the Packers. It was awesome. Mm. It was a great run. Yeah. Equaled six points. Mm. It's got to be a passing attack for the Bucs. It has to be. One of the things I was thinking about as well about this game is, you know, for all the all the previewing and analysis and sort of scheme con- conceptualizing before a game of how things are going to go, <laughs> you get into a game, somebody scores like two early touchdowns, and the game plan goes out the window, and game flow takes over from that point on, right? It, it completely alters the path of the way the game was going to go. When I look at this game, I think that basically every way that can happen hurts the Bucks. So you know, whatever You're, you think about, either they get a lead or they don't. Yeah, but either way, <laughs> it's bad for them. It's just, it's just, I think unique against the Chiefs. So let's say Tampa Bay gets down in a hurry. They already know that the Chiefs are going to put up a ton of points. If they get down by double digits, I know. Look, one of the benefits of playing with Tom Brady is this man has like unbreakable mental strength, right? And he's never done. He always thinks he can come back, and but not everybody else there does. You know, the, there's a bunch of Bucks players that, for them, this has already been their Super Bowl. Like, guys crying after the NFC Championship game. They've never been anywhere near this. Like, Mike Evans didn't know there was a ceremony after the NFC Championship game. It had never occurred to him, right? He's <laughs> never been there. So, like, if he's playing with a bunch of guys for whom this is their first shot at this. And they don't have the experience of this game the way he does. So, if they get down in, like, a double-digit hole against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl... I, there's a lot of bucks, I think, that will be looking at that and thinking, I don't know if we're coming back from this. Now, on the other hand, if the Chiefs get down by double-digit points, it's like the, their happiest place. It's like, oh, great. Now we can, like, throw out the, you know, the conventional normalities of offense, like run the ball every now and again. Now we can just air it out with Mahomes, throw deep to Tyree Kill every single play. This is where we – this is our happy place right now. Like, if the Bucks get up to a double-digit lead – it's almost the worst place the Chiefs or they can put the Chiefs. And if they get down by a double digit point score, I think they're in real trouble. So that's what happened in the first game. They got down twenty seven to ten, the Bucks. They did make a comeback, right? Brought it to twenty seven to twenty four. But here again is where the Chiefs are just incredible on offense. And it and it look, the calling the Chiefs incredible on offense, that's a broad thing. But your point is they're good with the lead, they're good when they're behind. They went four-minute – the, the four-minute offense is designed to run out the clock, right? You have a lead, you run out the clock. In the first game, the Chiefs got the ball with four minutes and ten seconds left and a three-point lead. And Brady, who was heating up, ready to make you know this classic fourth-quarter comeback, didn't see the ball again. With four minutes and ten seconds left, the Chiefs had Mahomes pick up a first down with a scramble uh, – with two scrambles, and they ran a couple times, and then they – you know, of course, on, on third and seven, connected with Tyreek Hill, their third and their third down guy, eight yards on third and seven. That's all they needed. That's what they got. That sealed the deal, and the Bucks never see the ball again. So your point is essentially the Chiefs can – the offense is just good. Whether they're down or whether they're running the clock out, they're really good. And, yeah. Yeah, so the Bucks. I mean, the Bucks have to play an outstanding game. Um, and I think – let's go to the offensive line stuff now. So – Eric Fisher's hurt. He's out for the game. Mike Remmers moves from right tackle to left tackle. On paper, it doesn't look great. <laughs> Mike Remmers, Nick Allegretti, Austin Ryder, 
Stefan Wisniewski, Andrew Wiley, a guard moving out to right tackle. The tackle position is going to be the biggest question because Allegretti and Ryder and Wisniewski, they're okay on the interior. They're fine. Remmers moving from, from the right side to the left side and Wiley on the right side. When you have Shaq Barrett, JPP, and the interior is an issue with Vita Vea, right? Um, and Sue. The Bucks have a shot here. And my the point I made on the Monday podcast is I think this is going to determine how the Chiefs build their team a lot going forward if the offensive line is seriously an issue. And they're going to be like, man, we've got to really protect Mahomes and have depth going forward. Yeah. So on paper, this is the biggest mismatch in Tampa Bay's favor in the game, obviously. They've got a really good defensive line, a defensive front that can generate pressure. Vita Vea with another week under his belt could potentially be even better this week they have the potential to wreck that Kansas City offensive line. On the other hand, the Chiefs offensive line on paper has looked like ass for a while. Like, okay, all you've done is lost one more guy. Now, okay, eventually you probably do reach a tipping point. It, in theory, it, weak, it weakens two spots because you move Remmers at least to a new position. He's used to playing right tackle. In theory, that's a tough challenge. Yes. Offensive linemen tell me that's a tough challenge. But how much did you weaken it? It's You know what I mean? Like, Eric Fisher's been solid, but... I mean, you know, my, my point is that it's not like the line was great and then suddenly heading into this week it's going to be a disaster. The line was already bad, and you've made it a little bit worse. How, how big a problem is that really? And for the Chiefs in particular, all the stuff we, we talk about, you know, Mahomes, the, the argument is Mahomes is fantastic, but he has Kelsey and uh, Tyreek Hill and Andy Reid, and they are one of the – are the most RPO heavy offenses in the NFL. They have a ton of creative screens. They do a bunch of stuff that makes his life easier. And that's why that when Mahomes does have a bad game, they still put up a passer rating of over 100. And that because even though Mahomes is sort of fantastic, he's putting up otherworldly numbers because he has all these other things helping him as well. And that's why put together, all of that makes the Chiefs unstoppable. Those things all help offensive line as well. So the RPO game means that there's a bunch of plays where offensive linemen are not pass blocking. They're literally run blocking. They're not – that's what the RPO is. The, the offensive line is run blocking on the play. They're not – they're literally not part of the protection. So there's a whole bunch of those plays. The screen, same thing. They're not pass blocking. There's a whole bunch of plays where their ineptitude trying to contain pass blockers is just – or pass rushers is not a factor. So all of these things that are designed to help – the offense and Mahomes just have a byproduct already of helping out the offensive line. So these are all reasons that I just don't see it being, I don't see it being like a critical factor in the game. I think it's, it's Tampa Bay's best shot. If they can like make that a big problem for Kansas city, but the chiefs are like, they're still top half in the NFL in terms of pressure rate this year. They don't, even with the bad offensive line, it's not the catastrophe it would be, for the Bucs. Like, if the Bucs were rolling out a team full of backup offensive linemen, forget it. Like, game over. Don't even yeah. show up. For the Chiefs, it's not great, but I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's the reason they're going to lose. I want to add some perspective here why it might not matter. Um, so, in the Green Bay game, you had backup uh, offensive tackle, and the Bucs, well, they sacked Rodgers five times. And who does Patrick Mahomes get compared to the most? It's Aaron Rodgers, right? And with good reason, right? In, in pocket stuff, outside the pocket stuff, arm talent, all of it's great. And the, but the one difference in Mahomes and Rodgers so far 
is Mahomes doesn't get sacked. And whether that is in part because, you know, a big chunk of the plays are unsackable, so to speak. Screens and mm. plays where you invite in the rush and RPOs and all that stuff. That definitely helps the old sack percentage. But just using sack percentage, percentage of total dropbacks, historically, Patrick Mahomes, fifth lowest sack percentage in NFL history. Mm-hmm. Early, and he's, he's, young, he's early in his career. He's, got the, he's just ahead of Drew Brees, yeah. who gets rid of the ball, lightning quick. Brady's at 11th. Now, if you just, you know, Brady early in his career took a lot more sacks, you know, recently. But they're about the same type of guy. Mahomes and Brady at avoiding sacks, not getting sacked, which is essentially a QB uh, type of stat. Rodgers, but just by comparison, is 84th in NFL history. Almost two times as many, uh, almost double the sack percentage as Mahomes. And critically, um, critically, Mahomes does that whilst holding onto the ball an age exactly he's in the bottom 10 i mean i've got a i've got 42 quarterbacks here but he's like seventh in terms of the duration which he holds onto the ball so it's a great point all the the rpo stuff the screen stuff all those things also those plays where mahomes just like drops out of the pocket and keeps like backpedaling to right field inanely and then suddenly fires the ball back first down travis kelsey those are plays where, again, it doesn't matter how bad the offensive line are because Mahomes is already saying, I don't care what you're doing. I'm, like, shuttling over here outside the pocket. You're, like, where you were setting up the pass block is irrelevant to me on this play. I'm dropping to 15 yards and moving to my right. It doesn't matter if you're, like, face first in the turf and JPP is bearing down on me. So this is why I think I, I, it, if people I – don't, I don't listen to a whole lot, just a whole lot of Super Bowl analysis. I'm trying to – Keep a fresh mind here. Keep yourself pure? Yes. Okay. But if people are saying, hey, they just, you know, Rodgers had some backups out there and they just sacked him five times, they'll do the same for, for Mahomes. I don't mm-hmm. think that's the point in the game. I have heard that. Okay. So I think the point in the game is when you have lesser offensive linemen, though, you compress the pocket. I've used this phrase a lot. You compress the pocket against Mahomes and you you just, you control the block more. And I think that's going to be the key for the Bucks. It's not so much taking Mahomes to the ground because that's risky. If you don't get there, he breaks the pocket and you're in trouble. You compress it, watch the escape lanes, yeah. and, but you, your goal is to have him miss the open throws that are, that are behind you the right? guy, by having a little bit of pressure in his face. I think the, everyone will focus on JPP and uh, Shaq Barrett against the tackles, right. and that being the weakness. I think if the Bucks are going to turn this into a thing that actually affects the game, the guy that will do that is Vita Vea because he can, he can like – basically smash that pocket from the inside and right. Mahomes typically likes to escape out of the back of the pocket and around the edge anyway and you just keep your pad level on the well, edge yes so if though all you have to do is to say JPP and Shank Barrett you're probably going to win your block anyway just make sure you win to the edge because Vita Vea is coming up the middle if Mahomes is going anywhere he's coming past you make sure he doesn't get outside of you like right. that I think is where they have a chance to really impact this because Vea's 350 pounds worth of guy who can actually rush the passer. If he starts to squeeze Mahomes from the inside, you know, force him Aaron Donald style into those edge rushers who don't even have to win. They just have to be there. That can really impact the game. If they just expect like those guys are going to win around the edge, they're going to get after Mahomes, that will cause problems. I don't think that's going to happen. So this comes back to that, that initial point that we made, right? If you're the Bucs, do you say, go ahead, hit Tyreek. 40 yards down the field over and over again like you did in the first matchup because it's a longer developing play and your O-line does need to hold up a little bit better or 
does this actually does the Bucks game plan of keeping it safe actually play into the Chiefs hands because they're like hey we, we needed to protect our offensive line anyway we are going to try to get the ball out a little bit quicker we are going to try to run those zillion quick outs zillion quick outs that are wide open and that's what happened like that was the Tyreek factor in the first game right you're so afraid of him over the top a free eight to ten yards over and over and over again and we've seen the Chiefs are more than willing to take that yeah, I do wonder, though, to what extent um, – usually it is. Usually it's true that you know, the, long, the deeper downfield you're targeting, the, uh, the longer it takes for the pass – or for the quarterback to actually fire the ball away. I do kind of wonder, though, how much that's actually true with Mahomes because a lot of the time he's really good at doing that sort of Chad Pennington thing of put the ball in the air early, right? You, you just compared Patrick Mahomes to Chad Pennington? I did, yeah. And you know why? Because that's how comparisons work. I am fed Let's, up of people spasming at the concept team. of just invoking mo- comparisons. Tweet copy. Here's the thing, right? NFL podcast. People have Sam Monson compares Patrick Mahomes to Chad Pennington. People have forgotten the definition of the word to compare, right? To compare does not mean to equate. When I say, I can compare you to the curtain, right? It doesn't mean I'm saying you are the curtain. Just because we're wearing the same color? Though you are wearing the same color. That, that's the beauty of this. I can say, Steve is a lot like that curtain because they're wearing the same shade of whatever the hell color that is. It doesn't mean I'm saying you are a curtain or the curtain is you. To compare is to find similarities and differences between the two things. So I can compare Mahomes to Chad Pennington and say, you know what's interesting between those two guys? They're both very good at putting a deep pass in the air early and letting a guy run under it. And therefore, it doesn't really matter how far you can throw it because Mahomes can throw the ball like 90 yards and Chad Pennington can throw it like 34 in a good day, right? (laughs) So those are the differences and similarities. That is to compare. The difference between that and to equate which is to say Patrick Mahomes equals Chad Pennington, is stark and giant, and yet people seem to have lost that ability. What I'm hearing is Patrick Mahomes is Chad Pennington per PFF Sam. (sighs) Just what I'm hearing. Mm. Hear whatever you want. Anyway, my point is the deep pass isn't necessarily going to be a long developing pass. It can be one where he's putting the ball in the air early, which he will do if Tyreek Hill is streaking past people five yards. Let's wrap up this side of the uh, of the ball chiefs offense bucks defense how do you see it playing out what do you think the bucks strategy is and how do the chiefs handle that i mean i think their strategy will be effectively similar in terms of they're not going to blitz them like they are going to go away from their typical game plan so they're not going to be in tight because the thing about the blitz is not just getting a free rusher it's also that you know your rushers are getting one-on-ones you know that jpp's one-on-one you know that Chuck Barrett's 101. How tempted are the Bucks to say, man, one-on-one with Remmers and Wiley on the edge and a potential for one of our speedy linebackers maybe to get a, a shot on Mahomes? Yeah. They're tempted, no? The problem is you also put everyone essentially one-on-one in the back end as well. And given what happened to them the last time, I don't think they're going to be willing to embrace that as a strategy. Um, I think they're going to want to – also, the teams that have done – you know. I think the teams that have had the right strategy against Mahomes have been the ones that have backed off and dared him to win with patience and short, efficient passing. It, it, again, it's not, it's not to say that you're going to win doing that, but it probably is your best shot. You know, the Bills strategy. The Bills have had two very good game plans against Mahomes and come off second best both times. It didn't mean that the game plans weren't good or that 
they, they were sort of successful in terms of Mahomes still got it done. But if that is that versus giving up 200 yards to Tyreek Hill in the first quarter, you're better off doing the first one, right? So I think Tampa Bay should have discovered or should have the learning from what they've seen this season is that if you're going to beat Mahomes, you're going to do it by backing off, making him be patient and efficient and executing well and just hoping for the best at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think the Chiefs are going to score points. Yeah. Obviously. This is not breaking news. I think they'll get to 30, right? At least 30, maybe 27. I mean, in, in, if you're the box, you're happy and you just say, oh, we got to get more than 27. You haven't mentioned the weather, though. Thunderstorms. Yeah, let me, let's get an update on that. Can we get a weather update? I looked earlier in the week and it looked clear. Mm. So it's now gotten to uh, potential thunderstorms. rain. Huh? Yeah, rain, thunderstorms. Come on, you can't have thunderstorms in a Super Bowl. If everyone has to like bail to the locker rooms for an hour while the uh, the lightning passes, that's going to put a damper on the whole affair. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, let's check Tampa. This is good. Good podcasting here. Mm, good let's radio. See what, see what my update what is. What do you got? Sunday, seventy-two degrees, sixty percent chance of rain. That's a reasonable. Thunderstorms percentage. in the morning, then skies turning partly cloudy late. I, see, I, that was <laughs> that was Pete Traeger. I saw Schrager. That's where you saw it, right? Was Schrager or was no, it? No, somewhere else. Shafter might. It's where you did it. Yeah. Well, come on, Adam. Sunday night, 32% These things change, chance you know? I mean, what was, what was thunderstorms in the afternoon a few days ago might be thunderstorms in the morning now. Yeah. Yeah, 32%. Chance of rain's 30% Sunday night. Now, what's considered night? Is that 5 p.m.? <laughs> is that 8 p.m.? I don't know. Weather.com. Yeah, I don't know if the, the rain could be a little bit of a factor for the pass game, potentially. So. I mean, go. that might be the Bucks' best shot, right? Is that rain comes down and slows down the Chiefs themselves. Yeah, potentially. Good it's luck, also good luck trying to cover Tyreek when you don't have yeah, a footing. It's also potentially good for Kansas City in terms of nothing really slow. Nothing's going to slow down a pass rush more than soggy underfooting. True. Speaking of pass rush, let's go to the other side. Bucks offense, Chiefs defense. The one there's some high level stuff that's big here. Brady versus Spags, huge stuff there. But Chris Jones versus Aaron Stinney. Yes. The most experienced offensive lineman for the box, the worst offensive lineman for the box, you know, uh, losing, you know, having a backup guard there with Chris Jones. And Chris Jones doesn't line up exclusively over right guard. He'll, he'll, he should in this game. He'll switch sides, but in this game, he probably should. The problem with doing that, though, is the box will use a lot of two tight end sets where there is a run threat. And when there's a run threat, it's not as simple as Jones just, you, you want to play. Does, you want to play the defense that you call. Chris Jones is going to play three technique for the most part, which is why he's going to line up over the guard. So it's not as simple as just put him over right guard the whole time. But I wouldn't be surprised if coming out of this game, it's another like, wow, Chris Jones just, just had eight to ten pressures and you know was the best defensive player on the field. Yeah. I mean, Stinney has now started two games. Um, he has a pass blocking grade of 48 in the first one and 27 in the second one. So... And if anything, the competition is going to be worse, harder in the Super Bowl. Yeah. So you should probably expect Aaron Stinney to get his ass kicked in this game. And when that has happened for Tampa Bay this season, when they have one offensive lineman that has been a turnstile, that has caused them problems. It's usually been the other side with Ali Marpet down. But usually it's not, you know, we talk all the time about the things that move the needle the most in terms of winning games. It's quarterback, it's wide receiver, it's corner. 
this has the potential to be a one-on-one trench ma- uh, matchup battle that actually changes the outcome of a game. Yeah, it's it's also extreme. Yes. I- extreme matchups. Right. right. The offensive line is usually not about how good players are. It's about how bad the weakest link is. Because right. if your weakest link is tissue paper thin, it can lose every single snap and ruin every single passing play you have called. Well, look at Von Miller in the Super Bowl yeah. against the Panthers. It was Mike Remmers that he dominated. That, it, But it's like if you just can't block somebody up front, that's a massive issue. Particularly inside when you have an immobile statue of Tom Brady behind you. Oh, the hate. No, it's not hate. It's, it's a nimble 43. Reality. It's pliable at least. I'm sure he's stretchy, but he might need to be because he's about to get jumped on by Chris Jones a bunch of times. So the big matchup, though, of course, is Spags against Brady. Spags was the defensive coordinator. 2007, uh, the undefeated Patriots against the Giants. Yeah. hold. They held one of the best offenses of all time, maybe the best of all time, down to 14, only 14 points in that game. In the first matchup here, the first matchup was like a microcosm of everything we've discussed about the Bucks this year, which was when they're blitzed. Do they have answers? Do they Are they on the same page? Uh, Brady threw an interception in this game, trying to throw a hot route to Mike Evans. Mike Evans might not have been in the right – it didn't really matter. The throw was off, hit a defensive player. Was Evans in the right spot? You know, Do they have answers to the blitz? And I went back and rewatched all that. The, the, the pre-snap motion that Spagnola is using every, every single snap over and over and over again. It looks like single high, now it's too high. It looks like all-out blitz and it's single – I mean, it's just rotating and just – and it, and it just puts enough indecision into the quarterback, even a veteran 43-year-old like Brady, enough indecision for him and his receivers to be on the same page that I think it's just really tough to be efficient and complete pass after pass after pass like I think the Bucks are going to need to do to win this game. Yeah, um, and Spagnolo, the big difference between him and what went before him was this ability to game plan on a specific game-by-game basis. And that's what most of the best coaches in the NFL are able to do. It's what Belichick did so well for years. You know, gloss came off that a little bit with no Brady apparently. But the point is, when you get to the playoffs, that's when you need that because you're going to come up against the best teams in the NFL. And what you do normally might not work. So Tampa Bay is a good example of that. They like to blitz a ton. Against the Chiefs, that probably isn't the right way of going. So your ability to game plan something else is going to be big in determining who wins the game. The Chiefs, Spagnolo's defenses have taken a step up in the postseason. Like they're allowing almost half a yard less per play in the postseason than they are during the regular season, when in theory they're going up against better competition. So he's done an incredible job, not just with those, I mean, dating back to those Giants teams, of dialing something up for the playoffs that the offenses have just struggled with. The Chiefs, uh, we've used this stat the last few weeks as well lowest passer rating on passes thrown beyond the line of scrimmage i'm beyond the first down marker and tom brady the guy that was that some people like to criticize for being a dink and dunk quarterback has thrown the ball beyond the line of scrimmage at a higher percentage than anyone else he has fully taken to the bruce arian system in that regard right so something's got to give there it is it's not necessarily strength against strength, but it's it's the chief strength against what the Bucks like to do. And they're pretty good at it, right? Brady's had an excellent season, number two graded quarterback this year. Something has to give there. And I think in the first matchup, a lot of what you saw was inconsistent offense from the Bucks in the first half. But then there was a couple big plays. So as much as Spags, I think snap for snap, challenges the offense, 
what the Chiefs defense needs to avoid is in the first matchup you had a pass to the flat for Ronald Jones where he just runs by everybody for like a 38-yard touchdown. Late in the game, you have Mike Evans run a little double move and he's wide open up the seam. Like there were a couple easy throws in there. Gronk ran through the defense for a big 40-plus yarder. Um, so snap for snap, the Chiefs, I'd say, got the better of the Bucs. Um, and Brady also had one incredible throw to Chris Godwin on a post where he was getting smacked in the mouth. Like, so there's three, four, five big plays that the Bucks created there that were either a coverage bust or just general bad defense by Kansas City. But much like we saw, say, in the Green Bay that, that was the Green Bay game two weeks ago, wasn't it? I mean, the Bucks had a few big plays, but like snap for snap, it was like, ah, you're getting two yards here and negative two there and incompletion there. So I think the Bucks need to play a, a more efficient game, and the Chiefs are looking to at least avoid the big plays. Yeah, and we say this pretty much every week, but this this Tom Brady Bruce Arians offense it's it's skewed more Arians than it has Brady in terms of the where they were coming from last years, um, and the reason it's been so successful is that Brady has been singularly amazing at executing that in year one has. I think the highest average depth of target or the second highest average depth of target in the NFL this year, whereas everybody else creates 40 turnover-worthy plays over the season when they do that. Brady's at, like, was he 12 for the regular season, plus however many more he's had in the postseason, which the is people less. People heard that on yeah, the show probably, last time. Which is less than the number of interceptions he's had. Yeah. But the point is. Good stat. Yeah, the point is when this offense is great when the quarterback avoids mistakes. And when they don't avoid mistakes, obviously it's catastrophic because they're usually turnovers. Brady needs to have – he has to have a clean game. I know it's, it's a cliche pretty much every time the quarterback needs to have a clean game, otherwise they're going to have problems. But, like, Brady just can't put the ball in harm's way. And if he does, they probably don't have a shot of winning this. And I know – But to our earlier point, though, Mahomes doesn't need to play a clean game. No. Like, Mahomes didn't Brady play a does. clean – Mahomes had four turnover-worthy plays in the yeah. Super Bowl last year and two actual interceptions. Right, and they still scored what thirty-one points against one of the best defenses in the NFL. Yeah. Mahomes doesn't need to play a clean game for them to score. Brady does need to play a yes. not only a clean game, but a game with four to six big-time throws down the field. But also avoid, and you know, he it would help if he got lucky as well. Like people are saying, sure. the guy was bad in the second half last week, or not last week, two weeks ago, because he had three interceptions. They weren't catastrophic. You know, he had one turnover-worthy play, I think, in the game. Like he was getting. A little bit unlucky in terms of what was happening to that football. So he needs to, A, have a clean game in terms of not putting the ball in harm's way, and B, like avoid some bad turnover or, the, or turnover luck as well. For sure. Either one of those things. The point being, they the Bucks probably can't win this game if Brady turns the ball over. Chiefs defense. So th let's talk playmakers now because, again, the Bucks rolling. Mike Evans and Chris Godwin out there. Antonio Brown banged up. We'll see if he ends up playing. And I don't know if it's better or worse. I would say if Antonio Brown's on the field, it's definitely better for the Bucs. But again, as long as they don't forget about Scotty Miller. Yeah. I mean, that, Scotty Miller is worth a 40-yarder per game. The at least player in, in the NFL. Well, he th he thinks Miller. he's faster than Tyreek? He does. Oh, man. I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, no. Yeah, he's definitely not. But yeah. All I'm saying is Scotty Miller will give you an opportunity for an explosive play. And he only has, he has nine on the season. So it's not like he literally has one every single week. But it's because once Antonio Brown showed up, he wasn't getting nearly as many snaps. Scotty Miller gives you a chance to, to flip the field, man, to get, the, to get behind the defense. So I think the Bucks' best strategy is, you know, have, have Antonio Brown there. And you get your top three. 
get some Scotty Miller snaps in there, take those shots, and try to get the ball down the field. And the, But the more you hand off to Leonard Fournette or Ronald Jones, the less Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Antonio Brown, Scotty Miller, Cameron Brait, and Rob Gronkowski have a chance to make big plays. True. Um, if you were, you know, if you were a speedy wide receiver, how fast would your, like, official 40 time need to be before you'd even float the concept of being faster than Tyreek Hill? I'd have to have a recorded 419. 419? <laughs> yeah. I think if you get... Or, like, John Ross could probably lay claim. Like, hey, I ran a 422. Well, you ran a 429 I mean, or whatever, Tyreek. Because of the nature of these things, right? Racing in pads, or whatever. If, if I had a 4-3 flat on my resume, you know, like a, a, a laser time 4-3 flat... I think about it, you know. Scotty Miller is a four three nine. It's a full no, like yeah. no, 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 no. Look, come on. Tyreek ran like an official four two seven yeah. eight. Whatever he's in it the is. four twos, and he might be faster than that. Yeah, he plays you, faster on the field. Right, you ran like a four four flat. Stop it. That's like, it's not slow, but That's there's a, like a bunch of big, relatively pedestrian guys that run a four four flat. Forget it. I think I had a four nine in me at one point. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Anyway. Well, you should – I mean, you know, there's only like seven steps for you. It's, it's true. It's all about How steps. long can it take? It's all about the steps. Um, it's funny because the Chiefs cornerbacks on like – if you just said coming into the season, we got Trevarius Ward, Bashad Breland, and rookie Legereus Sneed at corner. You're like, oh, my gosh. Like, what? The Chiefs are – we, we're saying this. Like, yeah. the Chiefs are rolling in with this group. As much as I love Legereus Sneed, one of my favorite mid-round sleepers in the draft, wasn't expecting him to be the highest-graded rookie corner this year, which he was – but that has turned into a pretty good group. And it's not just a pretty good group. Like, Ward is good, Traverius, is good against bigger receivers. Bashad Breland's good on the outside. Again, like, playing man coverage. He's, he's having his best season in a while. And Sneed's really taken to the, to the nickel spot. So, it is actually really good matchups here. Yeah. I think the Chiefs, again, are weaker at linebacker and weaker at linebacker and then Daniel Sorensen in the middle of the field where the tight ends can do some damage. The problem there is Tyron Matthew is always lurking and again i think that's what makes the chiefs defense difficult to complete passes against and they've been changing how they use some of these guys as well like legerius need has suddenly become a threat on the blitz um he's had didn't have more than one uh blitz up until week 13 had two in week 13 and then 15 16 and then the two playoff games he's had four four five and seven like they've been ramping up how much they send him on the blitz which can only make things more problematic for uh for opposing offenses like he's had four straight he's had a sack in four straight games that's crazy as a cornerback and that's what i'm saying about spags defense man they're coming from all angles uh it's got to be great it's brady and the receivers need to be on the same page and that's where it tends to be like is that does that make it a gronk game like does he have the most confidence that gronk's going to be that's like beating the blitz is the quarterback and the receiver being on the same page and just the receiver knowing where to be and the trust factor, right? And being open. It, does that make it a Gronk game again? He had a big game against the Chiefs the first time around. Mm. And so it could be. This is the Gronk versus Kelsey game. Somehow both the same age, despite like Gronk They're the had, same age? There's like three months between them. But they came into the league like three years apart. Something. Yeah, Gronk had like apart. 45 touchdowns before Travis Kelsey had Gronk taken was an NFL snap. Real young yeah. when he came in. Yeah. And Kelsey was like 25 when he came into the league. Like, well. Kelsey's the guy now. Kelsey's right, but so Kelsey's consequently, better. Kelsey is like in his prime, whereas Gronk has already declined, retired, and come back at the point where, and they're the same age. It just it breaks my brain that those two are effectively peers. 
man, there's there's really a million different things to discuss here. The, the Bucks two safeties, Antoine Winfield, Jordan Whitehead might be banged up and hurt. JPP didn't practice on Wednesday. Um, so there's there's still a lot uh, a lot of storylines in this game. But bottom line, do you want to let's we're going to wrap it up. Do you want to talk legacy stuff at all? Do you legacy buy into stuff. the Mahomes Brady well, legacy stuff and what what's this going to do for It's pretty simple, right? What's I mean, it going to do for sports talk radio for the next 15 years? Brady wins, Brady ascends to the Michael Jordan plane of there will never be a bad word said about him until 25 years later when there's a new guy and we're like, "Oh, he wasn't really that good in the first place if you <laughs> yeah. actually look at his numbers." Jordan was overrated. Right. It's like, "Hey, if you actually look at these scenarios where Jordan really choked, it's bad." But and then everyone will mock that guy for going against like the conventional mythology that's arisen around this guy. So that's where Brady goes with another ring. Also, you know, poor old Bill Belichick sitting at home just getting more and more bitter about the whole thing. Anyway, Mahomes, it's the chance to a like prevent the goat taking further steps ahead of where you need to get to. Right? If you're Patrick Mahomes, your eventual goal in all this is to be better than Brady by the end of your careers. If Brady gets another ring, that just set you back, particularly if it's one that you could have gotten if, by winning against him. Um, I, don't, I don't think it really affects anything from Holmes other than that, other than Brady taking a step ahead of him in terms of where he needs to be. But, like, his legacy is he's still got plenty of time. He'll still have a ring and have been to two Super Bowls at the age of 25 and three straight AFC championship games. Mahomes is still going to be seen as the best player in the NFL Almost, yeah, regardless of what happens in this game, the only thing that happens that can affect him is that instead of being six to two, he goes seven to one down in Super Bowl rings, which just, yeah. just makes the legacy chasing harder. I think Brady just has so much to gain, and I don't think he's got much to lose. But it's all house money, right? Yeah. It's all house money. People, there are people that still think, well, Montana didn't lose a Super Bowl. It's like, well, Brady went to six more Super Bowls than him. That, like, I, that means he didn't lose in the, the championship game or I the division. I hear round. somebody unironically the day try and make the case that Montana was a better quarterback than just than Tom stop Brady. it it's like look I think there was a period during Brady's career where you could genuinely make the case that look he's ridden his luck a lot and he was on some very good teams and he wasn't that great and you can kind of you know put down a lot of the the winning stuff to, to things other than Brady right but since that point He's had another Hall of Fame career. Right. <laughs> it's time to drop that. Like, it's done. Whatever argument you may have had eight years ago is no longer valid. And if you're still clinging to that, it's just, it's just time to come off the hold table. Hold on. Here's some perspective. I, I tweeted this out the other day. I wasn't expecting it to take off like it did. But Peyton Manning's going into the Hall of Fame this weekend. Yeah. That's Brady's biggest rival. Right. Peyton Manning's going into the Hall of Fame. And Brady's playing in the Super Bowl. And it's not like Bra it's not like Peyton hung it up early. Like right. Peyton was thirty nine or something when he retired. And since Peyton's retired, Brady's been to four different Super Bowls. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Brady's real quick, just to wrap it up, because we we'll do our picks. Brady's last four Super Bowls in the fourth quarter in overtime. Ninety three. So a little over a game's worth of action. Five hundred thirty eight passing yards in <laughs> essentially four four quarters in a drive. 538 passing yards, four touchdowns, 93.2 PFF grade. So let's get to prediction time because I see everybody at PFF is afraid to pick the Bucks. I decided to go the other way. Oh, yeah? I, I, I would pick the Chiefs normally. Oh, I see. You know, I go with the favorites. You just want to have that uh, the Monday morning graphic that I had when Seattle knocked off The Denver. one guy that, yeah. that went the right way. Um, I'm taking the Bucks 31-27, and I'm, I'm hanging my hat on more Brady fourth quarter magic. And the Bucks just have to make a couple stops defensively. I think the pass rush actually does okay. 
impact the game here. So I'm taking the Bucks 31-27. Where are you going? I don't remember what my score was, but 30, I'm, I'm picking the Chiefs. 35-27. 35-27? Yeah. Okay, that's that's what I'm going. Um, interestingly, PFF Greenline, which you can get, which leverages all of PFF's data to essentially show you where there's an edge in the betting markets. Greenline likes the Bucks more than the spread. Like We have it closer than... Obviously, the spread has Kansas City favorites, three-point favorites. Uh, Green Lion likes the Bucks closer. And it's really, I think it is the defense, right? It's the number one versus number three overall team in PFF ELO, number two versus number five in offense, but number two for the Bucks on defense versus number 14 for Kansas City. Like They think that Green Lion thinks that there's a potential needle mover in that Bucks defense. If you want access to Green Line, it's all part of PFF Elite, which, by the way, is 25% off through this game, through the Super Bowl, using the promo code Super Bowl 25, Super Bowl 25, 25% off any PFF subscription, whether it's Edge or Elite. The draft guide's out, 477 pages of awesome. It's being updated on Monday as well. So you get the draft guide, you can get Green Line, get all your picks as part of PFF Elite. You can get the draft guide with Edge, 25% off Super Bowl 25. All right, let us know your predictions. Hashtag let us know. Hmm. Let's get into some off-season talk Do you ever now. check that hashtag? Are people just like endlessly tweeting us and we're not even paying attention? Yeah, I should probably keep that on the dashboard or something. Yeah. Keep some keep tabs on it. Yeah. PFF let us know. Maybe it might need, need to make it more specific. Maybe. All right, let's figure out how to get uh, – we'll get Brad in here. We'll talk some free agents and uh, contracts and all sorts of good stuff because there's 30 other teams in the NFL for us to discuss. There are. Hey guys, after the year we've all been through, saving money should be at the top of everyone's resolution list. So if you're still paying insane amounts of money every month for wireless, what are you doing? Switch to Mint Mobile. It's the easiest way to save this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting at just $15 a month. Sam, I know you're all in on Mint Mobile. Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, moved over to the U.S. and couldn't believe how insane the cell service was, how much it costs. And apparently it doesn't have to be that way. You go to Mint Mobile, you cut your wireless bills in, not just in half, cut it way down and save on all the wasted money that goes from having these bricks and mortar stores. Online only cuts the bill hugely and the service works perfectly. It's a no-brainer for people looking for extra savings this year. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile, get premium wireless service, and it starts at just 15 bucks a month. To get a new wireless plan for just that 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com PFF. That's mintmobile.com PFF. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com PFF. All right, welcome into Brad Spielberger. What's your official title here at PFF? I'm just calling you CAP, a CAP expert here, man. How's that? Salary cap analyst in the uh, research and development department. Okay, there we go. There you go. It sounds very official. So welcome, Brad. Uh, He's one of the newest members at PFF. And yes, he understands numbers with dollar signs better than anybody else at PFF here. So we're going to get into some of the uh, free agency as a whole. Um, But let's start with like your background, how you ended up here, and... Uh, we'll get into your contract projections and kind of that process and everything. What's your background? Yeah. How'd you get here? Yeah, sure. So uh, actually, funny enough, it was just last week, but uh, I went to Tulane Law School, which is known for their sports law program, and they have a competition every year. It's called the Tulane Pro Football Negotiation Competition, where basically 
You get mock negotiations. Let's say, all right, you're Amari Cooper. You're the Dallas Cowboys. You're going to come in. You know, you're the agent. You're the team. You're going to negotiate back and forth. You're going to use some stats. You're going to use some comparable players, stuff like that. And then, you know, at the end of it, you try to, you know, sign a deal. So we run that competition every year. Um, and I was fortunate enough to meet Jason Fitzgerald from OverTheCap.com, who is now the, you know, the official provider of salary cap information and, and contract information for us at Pro Football Focus. Um, and started working with him after my first year of law school. I just said, hey, I'll do anything you need, any, you know, grunt work or whatever it is, um, and kind of work my way up from there. He, he gave me more and more responsibilities on the site. Uh, and then ultimately, um, him and I wrote a book together, actually, called The Drafting Stage, um, kind of creating a new draft pick value chart, because the Jimmy Johnson chart is, is just a, a list of numbers with nothing behind it. Um, and then finally, was fortunate enough to meet uh, Eric Eager. Um, he is, was one of the judges at the competition, um, which was kind of him to do. And, uh, you know, just kind of, kind of created a relationship there and, and um, you know, from there just worked through it and, and kind of presented that I thought the next step for PFF was, you know, you already dominate the, the space with, you know, video content and, and cutting clips for players. You already have the best stats and analytics and all that. That next step that kind of will push us over the edge is, you know, also being a big player in the contract space. And so that's that's how it all began. Yeah, you and I are doing some work together on some of that behind the scenes for uh, for NFL teams. And, you know, again, the biggest thing when it comes to signing players, it's how good are they, how valuable are they, and then how much are they worth, right? So uh, you've come up with some salary projections or contract projections. How do we go about that entire process? How do you – what goes into that process for you? Yeah, so, you know, first you just analyze the market, um, you know, from a 30,000-foot view, just how many teams have a need for this position. Um, something I learned later also is you got to look in the draft – not the full draft, but maybe the top 50 or top 100, how many, you know, good players at each position are there going to be? Because sometimes teams will say, yeah, we could pay a guy or we think this guy could be an impact player right away. Um, and then from there, it's stats first. So you're going to break it down from comparable players looking at, you know, based on position, let's say it's an edge rusher, looking at their pressures, their win percentage, their defensive stops, um, stuff like that. And then when you find comparable players, generally you want to look the same age, same contractual situation. So are they a free agent? Are they, you know, they have one year left, so it's an extension or, you know, whatever. Um, and then you start looking at their old contracts, of course. Um, and then lastly, you adjust, which we'll, you know, we'll get into. You adjust for cap inflation, stuff like that. So, you know, the markets are going to grow. Um, you know, the position markets are generally going to grow kind of, you know, in continuity with the salary cap. Uh, obviously, this year, that'll be interesting to see how teams and, and agents handle that. But, yeah, so it's really just finding comparables um, and then just kind of working off of that. Yeah, what do you talk to me about the landscape now? Because obviously the salary cap has typically gone up year after year after year after year as the NFL makes more and more money. But we're in this COVID world where you know revenues are down. There's you know a relative lack of fans in the stands. What's the salary cap going to do, and how much is that going to impact everything? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest misconceptions about the salary cap uh, in a general sense is folks thinking that. You know, it's a one-year window, or that you have to fit under the you know the one-year cap, and that's what you're you're working with. And obviously, you just be cap compliant, but it's really the full you know or 95% of current year, and then you can borrow money from you know four years down the line by pushing money down the line, stuff like that. So we call that teams have, the Saints. Oh, go ahead. I said we call that the Saints. Yes, we call it the Saints and Eagles and, and void years and all sorts of tricks they you know they use to to just house money in the future. Um, and of course, the credit card bill always comes due. 
um, you know, as we know with our GameStop shares. But, you know, for, for the, in the short term, you know, you can just kind of, you know, roll along. And, and, and like you said, the cap generally is going to go up about 6% a year, which has been about $10 million in recent years. And then, of course, you know, unfortunately now that's not the case. But I think we saw with the Rams trade, um, you know, with the Goff-Stafford trade that, you know, that's a signal that teams, yes, they're obviously going to have to make some maneuvers this offseason. Um, but I think they're generally bullish. Um, I think the 17th regular season game is going to obviously, you know, create an influx of revenue. I think gambling, you know, gambling money is going to be another influx of new revenue streams. So, like I said, they're going to look at, okay, we just need to push money into the future and then hope that the cap does spike as we expected. Uh, let me ask about the Saints specifically here, though, because according to over the cap, they are at the moment, and I, I don't know how real these numbers are, but it, like at the moment, $101 million over the cap, right, for 59 <laughs> players, which looks like an absurd number. And they've been, you know, this is their credit card being due. Uh, or is it? Is there even a world where the Saints can bring back players, re-sign players, sign a free agent or two, be competitive next year, or are we looking at a completely new Saints team next year given the situation that they've been put into so this is you know obviously i haven't been doing this forever but this is the worst situation that i've seen and i, I venture to guess it's probably the first time a team has ever been projected to be you know 100 million dollars over the cap um this is this is the credit card bill becoming due and, and the whole point the entire time was we have you know one of the five best quarterbacks to ever play the game and drew Brees. why not just continue to build around him and continue to you know kind of capitalize on this window we have you know, they obviously didn't make a Super Bowl or win a Super Bowl, but they were winning, you know, 13 games a year. So they, they capitalized to some extent. But it's not as drastic as maybe it's presented. Like, they're not going to have to shed the whole roster and tank and go 2-14 and 14 next year just, just to get by. They're going to have to just continue, as they've already be, been doing, to push a ton of money into the future, you know, on some older players as well. Um, but, you know, Drew coming off the books takes $25 million right away. So already you chop that, you know, in, in a quarter off of that. Um, I think the one real effect we'll see is I'd be surprised if they can retain Marcus Williams or Trey Hendrickson. I, I just don't see how that happens. Um, and then I know folks in, in New Orleans have said, like, now nah, they're going to be in on Stafford. You know, we, we heard they didn't even call. Um, and we saw the comments, you know, from Sean Payton yesterday about Jameis Winston. I think it's pretty clear their plan at quarterback is going to have to be another, you know, kind of cheaper deal for Winston, build around him or, or kind of, you know, use the roster around him. Um, they can't really compete on, on big contracts. That's the problem with drafting so many good players in the 2017 draft. Like Marcus Williams and Trey Hendrickson are probably the fourth and fifth best players uh, in that draft class with Alvin Kamara, Ryan Ramchak, and Marshawn Lattimore. Very difficult to just keep those guys, right? After you have an one of the best draft classes probably of all time. Um, let's, let's talk some of the contract projection stuff that you've worked on. You've used PFF War a little bit in that, right? As, as far as trying to use that as a proxy for what a player is or how the league values him how much does that factor in to your projections and how close are the projections compared to what you've seen historically yeah sure yeah so one of the first things i did when i got here um you know and got access to that that glorious war data was i really wanted to see you know how predictive is our wins above replacement you know war data as compared to the market um and so with a couple adjustments for age, for draft position, um, you know, and, and then looking at, you know, a little bit of injury, stuff like that. Once you adjust some very, you know, objective adjustments that are just kind of, we know control the market to an extent, um, they're highly accurate. Uh, there was, I, I want to say, basically what I use it to predict is the average per year amount, which of course is not, you know, the, the end all be all, you know, guarantees and stuff like that obviously matter more to the player. But 
but the way the market is gauged and the way they compare each other is by average per year. So that was kind of the, the you know, output variable that I wanted from the input of the war. Um, I mean, we're projecting around 85% just based on this, um, 85% of the projections were within 20% of that APY. So, you know, if it's a 10 million APY in reality, you know, we were right around there, eight to 12 million, um, you know, with just that projection and nothing else. But then of course I'll go back in and say, all right, well, yes, this guy's war is this, but he missed, you know, eight games in this season. So I got to tweak it there or another big one. It's referred to as a platform year, which is, you know, the contract year. Obviously if a guy, you know, stunk two years before the contract, but was incredible, you know, the one year before the deal, then you got to wait that and, and kind of take the trajectory into account, but it, it gives you a great baseline. Um, so this season in particular, it's a weird free agent group. It's it's pretty strong at the top. I think there's a lot of very good players, and then it gets weak very quickly. How do you anticipate the money getting shared out? Who's going to get the big money deals? Are the sort of middle class of free agents going to get squeezed out? How do you think the money is going to get divvied up? So I completely agree with you, and I think it kind of works with what we discussed with the cap. So. I agree. It's a little bit top heavy. And then there's some solid players, but not, you know, a lot of guys that jump off the page, um, especially, you know, those higher paid positions like edge rusher. There's not, you know, a ton of great edges coming off, coming on the market. I think the top guys will still get their money. And I do still think that they will be pushing, you know, the ceilings of their respective position markets um, or, or, you know, still landing the top five or top 10, whatever. Um, even though, you know, as I mentioned, you generally, you know, adjust with inflation. I think they're going to ignore that for the top paid guys. I then do think, that middle tier of kind of older guys, if you're around 30 and if you were, you know, looking for maybe a three-year deal, uh, kind of in the middle tier, you might just sign a one-year flyer um, and try to cash in again the following offseason. So I would say we're going to see a lot of top-heavy and, and, you know, and minimums, kind of like the Rams' approach to, you know, the roster <laughs> construction, I suppose. But I think every team is going to kind of follow that MO of the top guys are going to get their money, they don't care, um, and then we might have to pinch some of those mid-tier vets. Uh, before I, I want to get into some DAC discussion in a second, but I want to ask you about the Rams too. Um, and I think this might be a daily topic for us, Sam, is the, the, the Rams strategy essentially. Um, and by the way, I broke into the two for one drafts podcast, broke in to ask this question in the middle of the episode, just upset the entire episode. They gave a good answer, Austin and uh, Sam. So the, uh, we have an answer on another PFF podcast, but the question is the Rams strategy. Um, and, and the rumors that they just don't value first round picks. It's not even a rumor. They're not going to have one from 27, 2017 to 2023. So what are your thoughts on that player versus draft value? Are they making the right move in theory, not even drafting in, in their, in their head, mitigating risk by bringing in players that are more known commodities? Well, you teed this up perfectly. I'm actually in the, <clears throat> in the process of doing an article for it right now. Uh, it'll, you know, it'll be out on pff.com probably next week. So keep an eye out for that, folks. Nice. Um, and no, I, I reject the idea. I, I don't think they even necessarily believe that. I, I think Les Snead was maybe getting a little bit of, you know, help from, from, you know, some friends in the media there. Just that, again, it's not necessarily a bad idea. It's not necessarily like I see the, 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 the argument that we'll take a sure thing over a potential good first round pick and they of course think they're going to be picking you know 25th or later but I mean you just go look anecdotally at, at the history of some of these deals 
Um, even again, off the top of the head, an easy one. The Jay Cutler trade was the exact same trade. It was two first round picks, a third round pick, and Kyle Orton for which you know it's a little bit mean to Jared Goff, but uh, <laughs> for Jay Cutler. So yeah. exact same trade. The Bears then gave him a gigantic extension, which maybe Stafford doesn't get, but you know I, I wouldn't be surprised there. And then he was never a top half of the league quarterback. You know, again, per our wins above replacement, he his best Bear season I think was 19th. You know, in, in WAR. So there's no such thing as a sure thing. Um, with players either. Uh, and, and then the component that no one talks about is, yes, is the surplus value of that rookie contract. So even look at an example from this past year, Stephon Diggs leads the NFL in what receptions and receiving yards, has an incredible season, and the Vikings still got a better or, or you know, equally good receiver on a deal that's worth 10 or $15 million less over the next, or per year over the next three years. So, you know, again, it's anecdotal, of course. They could have taken – you know, Jalen Rake or, or, or somebody else. But, right. but uh, yeah, I, I reject the idea that it's it's a sound strategy um, over the long haul. It's eventually going to catch up to you. But but I do recognize that if you have, you know, arguably the best defensive player of all time in Aaron Donald, you have Jalen Ramsey, one of the best corners, if not the best corner in the league, the entire offense is under contract, you know, all their weapons are already signed, then, yeah, you know, be aggressive, go for a window. Why would you try to, you know, carry Jared Goff and add – you know, 20th overall pick first rounders to try to get over the hump. Yeah, I get it there. But but in general, no. And obviously we see these trades for, you know, edge rushers and safeties and stuff like that. And that's obviously, you know, not great business over the long haul. How do you think that the Dank Prescott Dallas Cowboys thing is going to work its way out? And why has it got to the point it's gotten where, you know, there's still no deal done? You know, I think part of Dallas's negotiating strategy um, is they like to quote unquote win the negotiation. And I think that's, it, I understand wanting to, you know, exert control and, and be the big dog in the negotiating room and all that. But at a certain point, it benefits both parties to just take care of your guy, make sure he's happy. He's comfortable. He's not, you know, worried about getting hurt or anything like that. Or, and he just is, has a deal that's requisite with his, his talent and his value. Um, and it just works out for both parties. So I think a little bit of that comes in. You know, I really don't think they think that he's a true franchise quarterback. And, and they look at their roster and say, well, he's obviously been productive, but we've given him, you know, great offensive line play, great weapons, um, you know, all of these things. So and then they also, of course, love to argue, well, look, you're going to be a broadcaster, you know, with Jim Nance in five years or you're going to be, you know, Kellen Moore, you're going to be the, you know, the coach of a team. So they think there's other aspects of value that they can kind of leverage in a negotiation, um, which I think probably worked in the past. Uh, but I mean, look, we're, we're in kind of a player empowerment era, and I don't think Dak is really falling for any of those tricks. So <laughs> that being said, I do still think it works out. Um, you know, the quarterback, they're not in position to draft a guy really. They, they could try to, you know, trade up, I suppose. Um, but they have this roster now that, that's, you know, quote unquote, win now roster. Um, and they saw how bad it got when they lost Dak. So I do think it's going to work out. I think he's going to settle in around to Sean Watson's value. Um, you know, the years is the biggest you know, holding point there. He wants a shorter deal to cash in again. They want a longer deal. Um, you know, who knows how that works out. But I do think eventually it, it, it works out. Um, it's just a matter of I think the Cowboys need to be, I don't know, I think they're the ones that need to move. Yeah, that makes sense. How much do you think is them having that hard line in the sand? You mentioned that, you know, you don't think they 100% buy into the idea that he is this transcendent franchise quarterback. And I think there's pretty good evidence to support that independent of them. He isn't and hasn't been at the level of Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, even Deshaun Watson from what we saw from Watson this year. 
Um, so how much do you think they're actually right to say, look, you're not at this level. Like, we don't want to pay you Deshaun Watson money. We don't want to pay you Patrick Mahomes money because right now you haven't shown us Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes play. And is there a scenario where they say, look, this is, this is your value and we're not going beyond this. And if that's, if we need to divorce because of that, that's, that's how it's going to go. Yeah. I mean, I guess to an extent you could argue that the first team that's kind of, which, you know, we, we think probably should happen at some point. The first team that realizes like these second tier quarterback contracts, when you're paying, you know, a, a Derek Carr, a Jimmy Garoppolo, a Kirk Cousins, whatever, when, when those guys come to the market and they're setting the market and getting the highest contract in the NFL, just because they happen to be a top half of the league quarterback, you know, that that's hitting free agency. And that's the only reason they get this deal. Maybe they're pushing back on that and saying, look, we understand that's how it's been. We understand the next guy up, if he's good, generally gets that big deal. But we have a number set at, you know, let's say $35 million per year. Um, and we're not going to go past that because we don't – we think you're worth a lot and worth a good chunk, but we, do, we, we don't buy into this notion that the next quarterback up has to get the big deal. Um, but that's kind of how the market's been. So they're kind of – you know, in a way, they're working against the, the conventions of, you know, how that position market has been treated. And, and it's tough. I mean, quarterback – it's tough to nitpick with quarterbacks, right? I mean, they're the most important player in the building, arguably the most important person in the building. So, you know, I see both sides of the argument. Um, I guess it could get to that point. I I, I don't think it will, um, you know, because, again, the, the franchise tag would be $37.7 million, which, you know, could take up, like, what, a fifth of the, of the cap next year. So, and they already don't have the greatest cap situation. So, that you know, that's kind of a little bit of leverage for him as well. Um, I think it'll get done, but I do – I do, I do agree. I think they have a number in mind that they would not like to cross. Um, and that's where I think the years comes in. I think what they're probably saying is, we'll give you that number if you give us the fifth year. And Dak is saying, I want that number and I want four years. And that's where I think the disconnect is. So Dak's kind of using the Cousins model of, right, shorter shorter contract, let me hit free agency in four years. and But also trying to say, let me get Watson money in my home. Like he's trying to get a lot of money for fewer years right so he has all the leverage and has basically from the outset well, of this but it's a fascinating discussion because we just saw his classmates from 2016 Carson Wentz and Jared Goff sign big contracts and their teams have well, serious buyer's remorse that's the silly thing about this is that I think I think there's a I think Dallas is right that they should value him at a certain point they shouldn't want to go beyond that number their problem is that the only out, the only conclusion to that is having to walk away from Dak. And yeah, that's it, probably something that they don't want to do. It, it, and the only thing is, I always use this point, right? Six, seven, eight years ago in the NFL, that was scary, right? It was very scary to not have a starting caliber quarterback. Now you have teams saying, Jared Goff is a starting caliber quarterback, but I want better. So you have teams saying... I'm not ready to just settle for a starter. If I have to get Marcus Mariota or Jameis Winston, I can do that. They're available where those guys weren't available seven or eight years ago, I don't think, in the NFL. I think so. Dank's good enough, though, to make it scary again. Like, it's different walking away from an Andy Dalton or a Jared Goff. I think, I think Dank is good enough where it puts it back into the scary category of – you know what? Technically, you're probably right. You should walk away, but oh, there's a lot of there's yeah. a lot of capacity to get worse. I will say, with Breeze going, Big Ben falling apart, with Rivers retiring, Dak is probably in that he's in that top ten guy, uh, yeah, category, right? Top eight type of quarterback category, right? So, gotta pay him. Well, um, this is the last question, Brad. You said Dallas wants to win every negotiation. How do you explain Zeke? <laughs> yeah, well. 
I guess if you go to Cabo and threaten to hold out, um, then I, you know, that that's. I think maybe Jerry respects it. Maybe maybe there was an aspect <laughs> to it of, you know, this guy this guy knows how to drive a hard bargain, and, and I, you know, I respect his uh, negotiation style. I don't want to I mean, do yeah, it. I don't know. It's interesting. But I respect it. You know, we talk about positional value and all that, and, and Zeke's kind of Zeke and Jalen Smith are the ones that were handed, you know, easy extensions, whereas. They even let Amari Cooper, you know, reach the tampering window. And, and per some reports, the football team, the Washington football team, I should say, um, you know, offered him a bigger deal than the one he got from Dallas. And so he then, you know, took a, a slightly less deal, you know, to stay in Dallas. So it, it's kind of inexplicable. Um, you know, I obviously don't think they're totally um, aware of positional value, I suppose. The fact they took him fourth overall in the first place obviously hints that a bit. Um, and, and that's something that I think we saw finally this past offseason where, I mean, Zeke's contract was really only surpassed by McCaffrey. Um, Kamara's APY is $15 million a year, but that's because he has a non-guaranteed $22.4 million salary with a non-guaranteed $2 million roster bonus in his fifth in 2025, which there's a close to <laughs> 0% chance he actually hits. So all these guys this, this year on the market all signed like 12 to $13 million per year deals um, with not significant guarantees. You know, you look at Henry Cook, all you know, Mixon, all these guys. So I think the market has adjusted and, and has corrected, um, but unfortunately, they were a little late to the party there, and, and they, they followed Gurley with Zeke, and, and then it's kind of been downhill from there. I love it. Great stuff, Brad. So Brad's, you know, again, new to PFF. Uh, you can find him. What's your? Tw- are you at at PFF underscore Brad on Twitter now? Yep. Okay, we we allowed I'm him official. the the official PFF name. So at PFF underscore Brad. Uh, check out his work at pff.com. We'll have him on again, hopefully during free agency and talk more about this after the deals and we, we can analyze it and everything, but great stuff and nice to have um, a cap expert here at PFF. So thanks, yeah. Brad. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's it, Sam. That was good. Good discussion with Brad. Brings a lot of uh, intelligence to PFF. It's great. Well, that's new. Yeah, that's useful. This is a new one. <laughs> We've gotten so much smarter from the early days when it was just you <laughs> and a couple other dudes, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Started with me, class of 2011, Sam. Well, yeah, it was, a, it was like the dip I. in the middle before we got smarter again. That was Renner. Oh, Renner was the dip. Okay. Yeah. All right, guys, that'll do it. Everybody enjoy the Super Bowl. Have some fun. Hashtag let us know how you're watching the game and what you're going to eat and all that stuff. We'll check the hashtag, sure. Okay. Um, and But, yeah, we'll be back Monday. We'll recap the Super Bowl, and it's all off-season mode. Sam's been grinding draft film, and, you know, we're going to be getting into it. So appreciate everybody tuning in. Enjoy the game. See you Monday.